0: Hi, I'm Cheryl Prashker, and this is Folk Pod, the podcast where we'll hear from some of the most prolific and talented musicians who I'm lucky enough to call friends. They'll share their stories about music as a way of life and what folk music means to them. This week's guest is Scarlett Rivera, best known for her violin work on Bob Dylan's 1976 Desire album and touring as part of the Rolling Thunder Review. Scarlett has been making music and touring with some of the best musicians ever since. She has several albums of her own, including a brand new one, which is her first as a singer and writer. She and I have been touring with Eric Anderson for the last two years. So welcome, Scarlett Rivera. Hi, Cheryl. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for doing this. I'm excited to catch up because since we've been in lockdown and COVID has hit the universe, we haven't seen each other in about a year. I know. It's flown by. I know it has. I have so many questions, and I know that we'll have some fun chatting and reminiscing and learning some new things about you. But I think I actually want to start sort of at the beginning, if I may. Obviously, you do a lot of interviews and you've spoken to a lot of people, but I bet you don't get a chance to talk about yourself as much as you know who. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to mention you know who until later on. Okay, first, where did you grow up? I grew up in a Midwestern town outside of Chicago called Joliet. Obviously, violin is your, actually, is violin your first instrument?
1: Actually, no. I started on piano at six years old. And ah. I moved to violin because I didn't really take to piano as well. And I took to the violin right away. Private lessons or were they group lessons? Or well, I had private lessons through grade school, high school. And we had a wonderful orchestra. We had a conductor And I had first chair from beginning to end. (laughs) At what age did you first try the orchestra? I guess like second grade on, I was in the orchestra. That's
0: amazing. You're very lucky to have had that because I know that not everywhere do they have orchestras for kids that age. That is spectacular. What a great experience that must have been for you.
1: Mm -hmm. In high school, we actually came to Canada and we did an exchange program. I lived with a Toronto family. And our whole orchestra took the train to Toronto and stayed for a week. A whole week.
0: Oh, I did some of those when I was in high school. Actually, my first time to New York City was an exchange with a band. I think people don't realize how lucky the kids in band and orchestras are to have those kind of experiences, to meet other musicians. And
1: so you obviously remember those times. Yes, I do. That's when I got to expand my horizon beyond that town is through those great composers. Yeah. And to envision a place and to see possibilities beyond that small Midwestern town.
0: So did you actually foresee yourself maybe playing in an orchestra? I mean, was classical music the end-all be-all for you? Or did you start realizing there was other kinds of music that you could put your violin to?
1: It was kind of a given that i was going to move in another direction even though i had first chair and i love classical music and i still play classical music and i have recorded classical music but somewhere along the line in like junior high i uh started being the prankster and uh uh got thrown out of orchestra no and, yeah <laughs> but they had let me back because i had first chair I had to ask the whole orchestra when the conductor's out of the room to uh, play a different piece when he came back in. And <laughs> and he broke his baton over my stand and said, you, out. Scarlet." Oh, my oh. goodness. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So did you always want to be a musician? Or was there
0: ever a time in your life that, you know, I think I'm going to be a veterinarian or something like that? I mean, was it always music?
1: I did art the whole time as well. Hmm. Certainly not as good as Joni Mitchell. I was but just going
0: to say, like a certain somebody we know. <laughs>
1: yeah, but I did do art all the way from grade school all the way up to college in conjunction with music.
0: So do you still have paintings or pieces of art that you did from back then? Or
1: I think my sister probably has a few little mm. etchings and drawings, yeah. Do you still paint? Somewhere along the line, music just took over and I really didn't look back on And when I started some years ago, I think I was on the Indigo Girls tour when I took out a notepad to start drawing and I went, oh no, I've forgotten everything. (laughs) I didn't have the nerve to come back.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't know that about you. I love that. It's a lot of musicians seem to have a feel for all kinds of art and stuff like that. We just don't always know about each other. Where did you go to university and what did you study?
1: I got a scholarship to Southern Illinois University for music and literature.
0: Ah, okay. So were you actually writing poetry or, or writing
1: music at that time? Not yet, but that's when I started to listen to The Doors and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix. And, of course, I was listening to Bob Dylan already, too, in high school, actually. That was transformative when I heard his songs. We will get to that later. But yeah. <laughs> I started um, playing improv to records. That's interesting because most classical musicians
0: would rather take a bullet than improvise. So you just kind of took that on yourself.
1: I took it on myself and I was improvising to John Mayle on the Blues Breakers. Oh, neat. And within like five years, I was sitting in with John Mayle and the Blues Breakers in New York. And fast forward, this last year, 2019, they asked me to record on his album. Wow. And on that same album is the guitar player from The Doors. You're kidding me. No. (gasps) oh, Scarlett, that's so cool. So, I mean, from the beginning listening to The Doors to John Mayle to... Many years later, I ended up working with uh, people just out of my own imagination working with.
0: Wow. So our lives do come full circle a lot of times and it just amazes me. It's such a great feeling when you're in the middle of that and you realize where you started from and the people that influenced you. And then when you get to meet them or work with them, it's just a magical, magical feeling. So back up a little bit. Obviously, you moved yourself to New York. Is that what happened?
1: Well, I lived in Chicago for a while. And that really was not going to happen. I didn't see any future of music there, even though there was a blues scene there. But I didn't really see myself as a blues violinist. Before I left college, I really was envisioning that I was going to do something with the violin and break into contemporary music. From Chicago, I bought a one-way ticket to New York. One way? Yeah. I didn't have family or friends in New York.
0: It just blows my mind. It just blows my mind. So how long were you in New York before
1: you met Bob Dylan? Several years. I'm actually writing a memoir right now, so I'm really refreshing my memory on what happened and when. Some things I did along the way, like one of the first gigs I did was with Ornette Coleman, the jazz sax player. Yeah, you did a little bit of jazz and you played with a big band. And then I also played with a Cuban band band. 13-piece all-Cuban band. I was the only girl in the band. And so how did you get that gig? Yeah, I walked into a Cuban restaurant, and I went there a lot. And I saw a guy walk in with a flute case, and he saw me with a violin case. Of course, we ended up talking. And he told me he was a band leader of a 13-piece Cuban band, and I had never heard live Cuban music before. And he invited me to a rehearsal. So I went brought my violin. And he invited me to sit in and there was no music. He just told me hints of what kind of rhythms to play. It was my first introduction to polyrhythms. You'll appreciate that, Cheryl. Get thrown into the waters right away. Oh, yes. (laughs) But I did. I did fine. But then he invited me to play a gig live with them. And all the guys in the band had this gigantic frown on their face. They go... We don't want a girl in the band, you know. Did they say that out loud? Yeah. To him, they weren't looking at me. They were ignoring me totally. (laughs) And he just stamped his foot. He says, I'm the leader of the band. I like her. She's in the band. All right. (laughs) Eventually, the band members warmed up to me. (laughs) I love it. I also wanted to try to learn some other styles other than my own improv to records and things. So I had heard about this violinist, Leroy Jenkins, who's a black jazz violinist. And I found him and I took some lessons. And after a few lessons, he said, you don't need lessons. He is the one that opened the door for me to meet Ornette Coleman and this string quartet with drums called the Revolutionary String Ensemble. Wow. Sounds kind of (laughs) cool. We are the String Panthers. (laughs) String Panthers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, we got to ask you. I mean, obviously, our folk audiences know a bit about you and Bob Dylan fans think they know a bit about you. But do tell us how you met Bob Dylan.
1: Okay. So I lived in Greenwich Village. I lived actually in the West Village. And I was going to clubs a lot, was club hopping quite often. And I went to everything, listened to a lot of different things from folk to jazz. That was what was happening live in the village. And I was also trying to find opportunities to either rehearse or to sit in or to audition with other bands. And I was actually still taking violin lessons, classical lessons at the same time, too. So one day I was going to the East Village and I was going to go to one of these rehearsals that I was invited to. And it was kind of a jazz fusion kind of band. And I really didn't get very far with them. I think I only met them once and they'd invited me back. And on that day, I was walking down 13th Street, my lucky number, <laughs> so happens, off of First Avenue. And I had super long hair, and my violin case was slung over my back. And this car just slowly was cruising next to me as I walked. And I was just about to turn and cross the street to go to that rehearsal, which was in a basement apartment. And this car actually cut me off. And a guy (laughs) reached over and he says, hey, uh, you know how to play that thing? I said, well, yeah, I do. And he kinda looked like Bob Dylan. Well, like Bob Dylan. A whole bunch of guys looked like Bob Dylan. Yeah. yeah. There were a lot of wannabe Bob Dylan lookalikes in the village at the time. Because so I was like, oh, I don't know about this. Did that not freak you out a little bit that a car stopped in the middle of the street following you? <laughs> you no, know, it was kind of more innocent time, you know. I guess. It really was. There was nothing sinister about it, you know. It felt fine. So then the guy just kept talking to me and he wanted to know more and he says, You know, I've gotta hear you play. And I said, Well, I was about to go to this rehearsal across the street. And he said, Forget that rehearsal. I really have to hear you play. And he said, Well, you know, I have a studio just around the corner. I'd appreciate it if you'd just jump in and I'll take you there and we can go over a few songs. And something made me go I think I should do this. I think I should get in the car. Normally, you don't just jump in a car with a stranger.
0: Did you realize who it was at that point or not yet? Yes, I did. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, because the conversation was short and sweet, but nearly knocked me off of my feet. <laughs> I bet. So then it turned into a long day, actually. I played for him for quite some time. He jumped from song to song. He didn't give me any charts. He didn't tell me what key anything was in. And he didn't play Dylan hits for me to know and play along easily too. So he was really wanting to test me.
0: Was it just him in the studio or the other guys around? Nobody else. Going back and forth and mm-hmm. playing on some Bob Dylan tunes. Obviously, you passed the test.
1: Well, I didn't know. I didn't know because then he moved to piano and then he didn't have any expression on his face. He wasn't smiling or going, wow, that's good. Nice. None of that. He was just kind of deadpan face. And then he slammed the piano down. He goes, you know, I got to go see a friend of mine play. You want to come along? And I said, oh, sure. I'd love to come. So he said, well, let's hop back in the car. It's just a few blocks away. Back in the car, we show up to a club called the Troubadour. Hmm. And on the marquee, it says Muddy Waters in the band. I got to go see
0: a friend of mine, he says, huh?
1: Yeah. Muddy Waters. So we walked in and he put me at the bar and then he said he's going to go talk to the band and he disappeared and I thought I was just going to hear the show from the bar stool for the rest of the night. After the first song, he got up and appeared from backstage and joined Muddy for the song and the place went absolutely bananas. (laughs) Yeah, he was unannounced, right? Unannounced, yep. Then he went to the microphone and he said, now I want to bring up my violinist. Are you kidding me? No. I was like scrambling to get from the bar stool to the the backstage and yanked the violin out of the case really fast and had no pickup. It was just an acoustic violin.
0: Right. So you're just into a mic, if there even was a mic there.
1: Oh, yeah. They just threw a mic over the top. And then uh, they went into one of Muddy's classic songs. Then Muddy threw me a solo and everybody (laughs) stared at me the whole band, Muddy Waters, the band, and Bob Dylan staring at me while I was playing. And then they started smiling. They all smiled and that was it. (laughs) I passed.
0: Well, never was there a better reason to say, and the rest was history. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I can't imagine how many times you've been asked this, but especially now that I know you're writing a memoir, can you really even fathom what your life would be like if that day hadn't happened?
1: Who knows? I don't think I would be here. You know, I was not going in a good direction in a lot of ways, not so much musically, but emotionally. Right. I was into serious rebellion and all kinds of stuff. So, and also I didn't want to just go, oh, I give up. I'm going to go back to this small town. So I kind of put myself out on yeah. a limb.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. You believed in yourself so much. We've talked about that. And I love that about you because you say you weren't in a good place, but you must have had some confidence enough to get up and do that. Even that moment on stage with Muddy Waters, I can't even imagine not being scared out of my wits.
1: No, I wasn't scared. I had confidence in music. It's just not in other things, not in life.
0: Right, right. That begins your journey with Bob Dylan. You record on the Desire album. You told me that once you went in to record your parts for Desire... It would have been Eric Clapton's solo on that album. Yes, he
1: would have been the soloist. It was either going to be him or me. I found out years later. I didn't know for sure, but I found out years later, and I do have the track sheets from Columbia Records. And the first day I walked in, Eric Clapton was still in the studio. We played on the same songs for the whole day. Did he end up on the album at all? Not at all. Every single song was axed. I didn't know till years later and somebody sent me the track sheets that he and his band had recorded every single song for Desire already. That's amazing. And so Bob changed horses in midstream, which was tremendous
0: daring on his part. Yeah, I remember you telling me that he had never actually worked with a violinist before this. So he didn't really have that sound in his head until he met you and heard it. He had never, you know, got to practice with anybody else. So you are the first violinist he ever
1: worked with, yes. amazing. <laughs> I mean, on Basement Tapes it's very strange, you know, in the cover of Basement Tapes, he's holding a mandolin and he's holding it as if he's playing a violin because he's holding it under his chin. Oh yeah. I wonder if that was in his head. Oh well, maybe. I guess it's meant to be. I
0: hope he feels the same way about I'm sure he does. That things would have been very different had he not met you.
1: It was a intersection of destiny for sure and it worked out great for both of us because I definitely did enhance something. I saw it when I saw the movie, actually. I mean, from an audience member's point of view, finally saw what I looked like playing from a distance. And I went, oh, wow. And it was magical and mystical. And it was course, magical yeah. and mystical. And I didn't remember that I did all of those face paints. And I forgot some of them that I did. Really? hmm You painted his face as well, right? No. Mm-hmm. He did his own? Mm-hmm. But the face painting started with me, not him.
0: Oh, interesting. Again, we cannot move any further on this, but in your memoirs, I don't know where you are in your memoir yet. Do you talk about what your relationship was really like in the memoir or do you not discuss that at all?
1: Oh, I do. I do. Absolutely. So
0: you were very close with him, were you not?
1: Yes. I mean, he really put his arm around me, I mean, like a wing. (laughs) in a gigantic way and an open way. I mean, he lifted me up very publicly. He rarely announced any band member by name. He discovered me and he went with being very proud of it, which is rare for him to be that open about a player.
0: And so you did Desire. You also obviously did the Rolling Thunder Review. And so you did a lot of touring with him. What I don't remember is if you were on another album
1: after all of that. I'm on Hard Rain, the Biograph, the Bootleg series as well. There are outtakes from Desire on both Biograph and Bootleg. And I am in the uh, Ronaldo and Clara film, the Hard Rain CBS special, and the John Hammond special. Interesting. So I did a lot.
0: And after your time with Bob, what was the next project? Did you stay in New York? I can imagine that it must have been an interesting
1: And strange time for you. I did stay in New York and I had already prior to meeting him, the last things that I was doing was working with a band that I was a member of that was like a fusion band. Hmm. So I continued on with the fusion band and we got a record deal. Well, I got a record deal on Warner Brothers. They were not happy because they were hoping it would be a band signing. Oh, the band was not happy, right? It had nothing to do with me. You don't tell a record company what to do. (laughs) So anyway, you know, because of the name recognition, they signed it under my name. But I still really loved the music. We ended up doing two albums together. And they were really incredibly progressive rock fusion. I don't think I've heard that.
0: Nope. Ah, I wonder if I can find that somewhere.
1: Well, one is called Scarlet River and one is called, the second one is called Scarlet Fever.
0: (laughs) Scarlet Fever. I love that. I love that. So you're still in New York. Where did you meet your husband, Tommy? Tommy Ayer.
1: Oh, years later, I met Tommy because I got signed to PolyGram International. And that happened because of the road manager of Bob Dylan, who I stayed in touch with. He was aware of what I was doing now with another band that was not my old fusion band, but I started actually writing. This was a later stage when I was composing and writing with this band. And it was really kind of new age music. And that's the direction that I started to go in. He really liked it. Oh, okay. And he landed me a record deal on Polygram. I mixed the album in London.
0: Ah, here we go. So for those who don't know who Tommy is, Tommy was an English keyboard player and played with such folks like Oh, you know, Joe Cocker, Jerry Rafferty. He also helped, if I'm not mistaken, to invent the sound and the band that was known as Wham.
1: Yes, he was the musical director, the arranger and keyboard player, keyboard wizard. Keyboard wizard for sure. So
0: that's obviously where you meant Tommy was in England. Yep. And that album, by the way, was called
1: Journey with an Angel. It was a sub-label of Polygram called Theta, and they wanted to launch us all at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. And of course, they couldn't afford to fly an entire band over from the United States. I was the only American on the label as well. So I only brought one band member. I brought a drummer from Switzerland with me. We had a rehearsals in London at a rehearsal studio called No Miss Studios, and the uh, label hired the best session players of London. I mean, the best. They all played with Jeff Beck or Elton John, Wham, of course. So Tommy was one of those top session players that was hired to be back a up band for all of the people on the label that was going to get launched at the Montreux Jazz Festival. And I had to send Tommy all my charts physically in the mail. <laughs> and he got my charts and they all said S. Rivera. There's no Googling anybody at the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he thought I was Sam Rivera or something. Yeah. He, he thought you were a guy? Yeah. Oh, that's great.
0: <laughs> it sounds like a Lucille
1: Ball sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> when I walked in the door at No Miss Studios, apparently his eyes came out like springs like <laughs> Wile e. Coyote. You know? Yeah. Wish I'd and- seen that. So we had chemistry from the minute we met, I would say, musically and otherwise.
0: Oh, that's so sweet. I just love the story about you and Tommy. And I know that there are people out there that actually don't even realize that you were married.
1: He was so much fun. Everybody loved him because he was brilliant, but he was very humble and told amazing, fun stories all the time. <laughs>
0: the two of you kind of got into more Celtic music and you did some Celtic albums with him? Yeah.
1: I was later signed to a small L.A. label, and they hooked me up with the Irish Piper from Braveheart and Titanic. His name is Eric Rigler. And that's when Tommy and I started composing Celtic music.
0: Did you tour together much, or was it mostly just recorded stuff before he passed away?
1: We didn't actually do a tour together, per se. Right.
0: And how long were you guys together? We
1: were together for about 12 years.
0: Yeah, and he's tragically passed away very young. Yeah. After that, you
1: ended up in uh, in LA, I guess. Actually, we both moved to LA together before he passed away. This happened in, in LA. He loved living here. I loved living here. He was still working with Gary Moore and flying back and forth to London with Gary Moore. And prior to me leaving New York, I was working with the Duke Ellington Orchestra. I remember you saying that. What was that like? That was wonderful. And that was another twist of fate where I was, I didn't get an official audition. It was just, I met his daughter, the granddaughter of Duke Ellington at a girl's party. <laughs> I didn't know that was how you met. And I ended up playing violin for all the girls at the party and we were drinking and having fun. And she was a very shy girl. And she said, I really like your violin and I want you to meet my father tomorrow. <laughs> so,
0: Did you know who she was? No. (laughs) So you were like, oh, yeah, sure. You want me to meet your dad?
1: Yeah. (laughs) She gave me the address of one Lincoln Center, which is very significant, (laughs) right? Then I saw the name Ellington. I went, oh, gee. And it was Duke Ellington's son, who was the conductor of the band at the time. That was her father. Mm -hmm. You just met him and
0: Waltzed right in on stage, did you?
1: No, it was just a casual, wonderful conversation. We talked about jazz and talked about music. And, and then he asked me to improvise for him and change keys and try this, try that. Then we sat back down, talked some more. And he said, uh, what are you doing on, you know, April 24th? I went, oh, nothing. Would you like to play Carnegie Hall with us?
0: What are you doing on April 29th? Would you like to play Carnegie Hall? And you said, I need to check yeah the agenda. You hadn't really played jazz a lot, you know, in a long time. So that
1: must have been an interesting kind of swing back. Yeah, it was a swing. I had to read the charts. Right. There's not a lot of improv for me, just a little bit. Yeah. But it was challenging. You had to read with the rhythm feel of it. Must have been a blast. Yeah, it was. And then they were all very happy with my playing. And they took me to Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And I joined them as a soloist in... Venice, Italy as well.
0: Wow. What a great experience. Yeah. See, things like that pop up in our lives that we don't expect, we don't even look for, and it just happens, which makes it more magical, especially when you reminisce back. I hope you're having fun writing about this stuff in your memoir.
1: I I am. Yeah, I haven't gotten to the Ellington part, but it it will be fun because his granddaughter, Gay, was a lovely girl. She's a painter.
0: Hmm. Great experience for you. I just love it. As I mentioned at the top, first time I met you was touring with Eric Anderson. At the time, you were about ready to do Joni's 75th birthday party in L.A. to play the birthday party. But I know you've known her for a long time. So how did you first meet Joni Mitchell?
1: Joni was on the first leg of a Rolling Thunder tour. Of course. She was invited by Bob as one of the guests to um, have a segment of Rolling Thunder by herself, and she did several of her own songs every night. So she was on the tour bus with us, and she was in the hotels with us, and she is the one woman on the tour that I identified with, was most inspired by, and the most that I thought was absolutely divine. Then you've obviously
0: reconnected in LA. Mm
1: -hmm. Then we reconnected some years ago in LA when she was with her husband, but then I went back to New York and kind of lost connection with her again. And just for your information, the song Songbird is what I wrote up for Joni.
2: She's a soul gazer, a one of a kind, a train.
1: But over the last like six, seven years, I have reconnected with her and stayed connected in a wonderful way.
0: Yeah. And for those who don't know, one of the magical moments that we all had while touring together in uh, L.A. was we got to go over to her house and have dinner with her. And Mm -hmm. we got to play some music for her and you arranged all that. So thank you. It was definitely I mean, it's definitely something I'm never going to forget. I know. Uh, it was great. Wasn't that fun?
1: Well, yes, always fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know,
0: well, we've had some fun touring together. I'm just very honored to even have met you and to get a chance to play with you on stage every night and kind of look over and watch you take some solos. And then, oh, it's just so much fun. I can't even tell you how much fun it is. So
1: thank you. Thank you, too. I mean, I love the fact that we're two power women on the stage, you know? Two power women, yes. And you know what? I love too, that we were cooperative, not competitive.
0: Oh, absolutely. Which is the way it should be, but it was Mm -hmm. definitely more fun. And poor Eric Anderson in the middle. Yeah, poor Eric.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Give the power squeeze.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good grief. So you've got a lot of things going on. I mean, you have not slowed down one bit in your career with your music. You work with Animal and Human Rights and a new CD. So tell us what life in L.A. has been like for the last few years and what you've been
1: up to. I have not slowed down because I have a lot to do. I've been an instrumentalist my whole life, but I really had something to say, and that's what prompted me to finally come out with a solo vocal debut. It's not because I want to particularly be a lead singer all these years, (laughs) because I really didn't. I'm beginning to realize singing really is a great thing and I am enjoying the whole process and I'm enjoying having something to say. So the title of the album is All of Me, and have great people on
0: it. I'd love to hear Dust Bowl. Can you tell us a little story about how that song came to be and why you wrote it?
1: Well, this is my nod to Woody Guthrie and to Bob and to the whole folk tradition and to the whole environmental disaster that happened in the 30s that is kind of around us today still. And so I tied those thoughts together in the lyrics. We were at the Woody Guthrie Center
0: together in Tulsa. Correct. I love it. So there was this interactive exhibit. You put on these cool glasses and you are kind of now in a house as the dust is coming out. You're in Oklahoma. It's the 30s, literally in the Dust Bowl. And so is that where you got the idea?
1: Yes, it overwhelmed me. I was crying after I left that. I want the audience to know that it
0: was I that forced scarlet to go over to that exhibit and put those glasses on so i take full responsibility for the song thank you
2: everything was beautiful till the dust unrolled their way it choked the life out For air, the dust bowl. Could be fading, silent spring draws near, wild voices crying as they disappear, scattered trees, precious memories, will be blown away, blown away.
1: I'm also doing something for the climate and for the environment with an organization called Climate Music Project. And I'm working with the top climate scientists, really heavyweights. We're in the process of coming up with a video and I will be scoring the music and the video will have statistics, but it will also have images about the loss of biodiversity, the loss of animal life around the world, and what's at stake and what's at risk and how beautiful it should be. Kind of ending on a positive note of what things can make this turn around for the planet, the climate, and the endangered animals that depend on aware people turning it around.
0: That's incredible. So most people at this stage of their lives would be saying, okay, it's time to retire. But it sounds to me like you're busier than ever.
1: <laughs> I think I'm busier than ever. I'm still yeah. doing recording sessions. And I just recorded with Kate Taylor, who's James Taylor's sister. Oh, yes. Yeah. I guess you didn't get to be in the same room with her. Yes, I did. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, they all had masks on. Sure. Peter Asher was the producer. What was it like to work with Peter Asher? Fantastic. Fantastic. Wow. We could have a whole other conversation
0: on, you know, people like that that you've worked with. I know you've toured with the Indigo Girls, you've toured with Sylvia Tyson. Yep. So you've worked with the best of the best. I have an interesting question for you. Okay. When we can continue to move forward like this, where we feel like we still have so much to do, do you consider yourself a success? After all the wonderful people you've accompanied and places you've played, why is it that a musician feels like we still need to do more? Is it that we are still looking to be successful or is it just that it's just part of who we are and we just need to keep going? Do you consider yourself a success?
1: Definitely, but I want to accomplish a lot before I leave this planet. (laughs) And I want to leave as much of the body of my work as I can. And also I want to do things that will have a great impact on saving the animal kingdom that I care very much about.
0: That's amazing. We musicians do more in a month than some people do in a year. Like you said, there's so much more you want to accomplish.
1: I feel extremely driven right now, actually. I'm also trying to finish and remix my Rock Fusion album. Yes. And it's got a little hints of jazz. It's the best of the released and the unreleased stuff that nobody's ever heard. And also the best of my Celtic released and unreleased. And that one's going to be called Celtic Magic. I'm interested in that one. I would love it if you would be on it. I
0: would be so honored. Oh, it's a date. (laughs) I love it. That's fantastic. Okay, here's another question that I love asking everybody. Tell us something crazy, wacky, cute that people would never guess about you.
1: Oh, I love, love animals of all kinds. I have walked coyotes. I have walked (gasps) wolves. I have walked African cats. I have worked with falcons. I have a falconry glove that matches my own hands. I, I did not know that. Yeah. I have been part of rescue of animals from Siberian tigers to lizards, you know, that were rescued from China at the LAX. Scarlet, seriously? Yeah. Wow. You're amazing. And that was all volunteer work and also... Did volunteer a free concerts for all the animals for years. Very noble. I love it. I love it. I love it.
0: Okay. So obviously you've got lots of stuff going on. So where can people find you on the internet and stuff like that?
1: ScarletRiveraMusic.com. Okay. Are
0: you on Facebook? Yes. Scarlet, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be part of this folk pod Podcast that we've been doing over the last few months, and it's an honor to chat with you. But even more, it's just fun to catch up. We just haven't really spoken much during the pandemic. Music keeps me going, man. Oh, Amen. Guys, you've been listening to Scarlett Rivera on Folk Pod. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck with everything that's going on and have fun with it all. Okay, let's stay in touch, Cheryl. Absolutely. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. FolkPod is a production of Long Story Short, with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host, producer, and lead schmoozer, and Shauna Boniface, creator, producer, and editor. Like and subscribe to FolkPod wherever you get your podcasts. And please give us five stars on iTunes. It really helps raise our profile for more listeners. Catch us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The FolkPod. Thanks for listening, and hope to see you next time.